Okay, it's time for another digital side hug. And I'm excited to be talking to a, a friend who lives in San Diego. And Robert, uh, am I correct about this? That you are, have I read that you are the most quoted psychologist in the United States of America? Um, I'm pretty sure, yeah. I don't know if anyone's ever really done a count exactly, but uh, <laughs> I, I, get in, I get in the news a lot for one reason or another. And, and fortunately, it's not because of the crimes I've committed. Right, right. We're talking with Dr. Robert Epstein, uh, author of a book called Teen 2.0, and, and Dr. E, uh, I have told you before that just the impact this book has had on me, on my ministry, on the way that I parent, and I'm excited about having a conversation today about teenagers. Well, then let's do it. Let's talk about the, the or something. Let me talk about anything you want, actually. Great. And, and that's that's a great way to start because the first few questions I have for you actually don't have a lot to do with teens to begin with. Um, f- first of all, am I being graded? I just need to. Am I being graded on these? The no, no, you're not. This is going to be okay. so much fun. Uh, before right. we do anything else, Doctor Epstein, tell us uh, who you are, what you do. Tell us about your family. Um, you're in you're in uh, San Diego now. What are you doing professionally? So let's start there. Well, technically speaking, I'm actually a uh, professor of psychology at the University of the South Pacific, which is in the Fiji Islands, the beautiful Fiji Islands. And, uh, and, and I've been there, my wife and I have been there the past year. I'm supposed to be there now, uh, but I'm hoping I can kind of transition back into the U.S. because I, I really, I, I just love uh, the U.S. and I love California. So... Uh, and in California, I'm affiliated with an institute called um, AIBRT, which is at AIBRT.org, and that stands for American Institute for Behavioral Research and Technology. And I've been uh, a research psychologist for more than 30 years. I got my PhD at Harvard uh, under a very famous psychologist named B.F. Skinner. I was his last doctoral student. Wow. I- I think I had forgotten that. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, basically, I, I I I try to enjoy life, and I try to put love before everything else. Certainly before my work, and I have I have four children of my own, uh, three boys and a girl, and uh, none of whom are children anymore. I should point out, and I have uh, also uh, from a previous marriage. I have two two beautiful little stepchildren. And uh, so I, and I, I just, uh, I love kids. I just adore kids. And that's actually one of the reasons why I kind of got into studying uh, teens at some point. And that's pretty much, uh, I do research in other areas, I should point out. I, uh, I have uh, 12 different or 13 different projects running right now. <laughs> and if people want to learn about the vast, the vast array of crazy things I do, they can look at... Uh, either AIBRT.org, or they can just go to my personal website, which is DrRobertEpstein.com. And is that D-R or doctor spelled out? No, just uh, D-R and then Robert and then Epstein, uh, or even just DrEpstein.com works too, just DrEpstein.com, that works as well. In fact, a lot of misspellings will get you there. <laughs> I just, yeah, you I thought took, ahead. I, I, took, I took no chances, exactly. That's great. And I know you're the former editor of Psychology Today. 
Uh, I've seen you on TV several times being interviewed by different news programs and things like that. If you go on YouTube, you can find Dr. Epstein doing a lot of interesting things, including, I know you did a sort of study about the science of love at one point, right? Yes, I'm still working on that. Uh, and uh, and I'm still fascinated by it. The, I actually published a, a study uh, last year that was written up by the New York Times uh, looking at how people in arranged marriages in different cultures, how they deliberately build love over time. And that's what I'm interested in. And I've even taught courses on that. Uh, you know, in our culture, we leave love to chance. But in uh, many cultures around the world, maybe even most cultures, uh, they don't leave love to chance. They, they, they start out in marriage often barely knowing each other, yeah. but they have the firm belief that they can build love deliberately over time. And it leads to a very, very different kind of a marriage because... In our marriages, you know, we since we leave it all to chance, uh, you know, sometimes we wake up one day and we go, uh, "I don't love you anymore," or "Who are you?" Or, you know. right. But in in a lot of these arranged marriages, uh, you know, they're, they're they're deliberately working on growing closer to each other and getting to know each other better. And on average, I mean, it's not a perfect system, but on average, their marriages work out a lot better than ours do. I watched you on a video take, uh, it, you were in a seminar and you brought people on stage, total strangers, and you had them look at one another and evaluate one another. And they, and then you ask them a few simple questions like, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how attracted are you to this person on a scale of one to 10? You know, how much do you like this person, you know, et cetera. And then you had them stare into one another's eyes, standing in fairly close proximity. And you had them tell one another, I love you. Simply say the words, I love you, I think 10 times. And then you ask them those simple questions again. And it was just really cool to see their, the way that they processed the questions, the looks on their faces as they realized, I actually like this person more now after simply saying, I love you. Yeah, all the numbers go up. It's, uh, it's, I call it the I love you game. And you, you can look at that on YouTube. Uh, and I'm writing a book. It's one of the books I'm working on is about that whole, you know, taking control and being deliberate. And uh, it's called Making Love, how, how people learn to love and how you can, too. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I am truly fascinated by that. It, the idea of taking control, you know, as, as opposed to leaving things to the so-called fates. Yeah. Um, and my wife and I are, are very much in control. We, we do not leave our love to chance and we have a goal of making our love stronger every day you know um and if, and if, and if you if you and your spouse actually have that as a goal and especially if you if you know some ways you know to, to, to kind of make that happen or to help it along it's fantastic it's completely completely different concept than the one you know we're taught through our fairy tales yeah and the, and the ones we see in our movies here it's a much better way of, um, you know, of, of being married, frankly. And, of course, you know, what I do professionally is work with a youth ministry in a congregational context. Most of the people listening to this podcast are also youth workers. And we work with teenagers many times who have 
parents at home that are struggling to keep things together in the home. And so I'm really intrigued by this idea, wondering if if we possibly in our congregational contexts can find a way to help some of our moms and dads, like you said, take control of, of their love life um, in ways that may run counter to the culture of fairy tale romance. Uh, I love, love, love what you do. And I'm excited about getting into the Team 2.0 stuff. Before I do that, I have a couple of questions. Uh, uh, I normally do a lightning round of get to know me. So we're going to start some music, and these will go quick. And Dr. Epstein, I'm going to start with this one. Google or Bing? Oh, that's easy. (laughs) Even though I I, I just have trouble with Google as a company, uh, I choose Google better. And we could do a whole podcast about your feelings about Google. Yes, we could. <laughs> you should go online and go- you should Google, for instance, uh, Robert Epstein and Google. Or how could they get to the the, the the satirical story that you wrote? Oh, the one about me getting killed by a, a Google vehicle? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. A street, street dude. Actually, if you just put in... Uh, you know, Robert Epstein killed by killed by Google. I think uh, gets <laughs> uh, to it, and and and, and a lot of uh, some news services have picked that up as a real story. By the way, so, I know that is so funny. Of course, uh, I knew that you were doing research about Google as a company and what they do, and sort of the regulations and 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 the effects that they're having on you know searches and the way searches are impacting political you know ramifications worldwide. So I was interested to see that article. Yes, well, it's serious stuff. It's, it's. Uh, I, I, I hate to say it, but it's very serious stuff because we, we've been doing uh, research, big studies with thousands of people, both here and in India, uh, which indicate that um, you know, unless unless Google gets regulated, uh, it really poses a very serious threat to democracy. And I, I am not kidding you. I mean, we've got the numbers. We have extensive data. It sounds so alarmist when you say it, but. But you've got the data. Well, we have the data. And and basically, even if Google officials are doing nothing and aren't interested in politics, which I don't believe, but even if they're not interested in politics, their their search algorithms right now are determining the outcomes of many closed elections around the world. Their search algorithms, computer programs, are basically picking the winners in a lot of close elections. I mean, that's insane. That that is amazing. And it makes me wonder, Dr. Epstein, if Google comes after you and then they hear this podcast, I just want to make it clear. (laughs) Google, I'm just a youth minister. I'm just a youth minister. Uh, You should Google that story. Anyway, this is officially the slowest lightning round uh, get to know me in history. And it's it's all my fault because I kind of knew where we were going with that question. But that's interesting to hear you say Google because I thought you would say Bing. I really did. No, no, no. Okay, so what is your least favorite carbonated soda? Dr. Pepper. Okay. Uh, which, by the way, that's also mine. Good work, Dr. E. Favorite member of the A-team? Face. Oh, okay, face. All right, good, good, good. All right, give me your ideal Jeopardy category. Well, <laughs> It would have to be uh, psychology. <laughs> just like, no, no, no specific like uh, subcategory. No, no just psychology because I just because I know I would win that way. That's all. <laughs> okay, great. 
Um, all right, let me ask you this question. This is from Dr. Morris Gregwire, uh, who is he's the sponsor of the program, and, and we asked one of his questions. He's a creative question writer. And this one technically is not a question. Uh, but from Dr. Morris Gregwire of AskingCanBeFun.com, Dr. E, tell us everything you know about plate tectonics. I actually know a lot, so I don't think you really want to. <laughs> oh, no. Okay, well, I was hoping we could find something that you might not no, be no, extremely... No, no. What's, what's, what's critical about it, I, I don't want to give you a whole lecture on it, but what's critical about it, what's really interesting about it, is, is that when it was first proposed as a theory, it was rejected. And that's what's most interesting about it. It's actually yeah. de decades before this idea that there was a Pangea and that it broke yeah. up and that the land is all interconnected. Uh, you know, it took decades before it got even even mild acceptance by, by scientists, and that I find to be interesting well, and, and, and relevant and relevant to my own work. <laughs> and I would say, frankly, relevant to this podcast or, or the topic we're discussing, um, because the team, yeah. you know, your ideas that you published in the book Team 2.0 several years ago are taking some time uh, to catch on. I mean, you know, when I say taking some time, it, it may be decades before, as a society, we come around to your way of thinking. Um, well, exactly. That's what I'm saying. See, the plate tectonics issue, what that tells you is you can be right, completely, totally, 100% right, and everyone else can be wrong, okay? And, you know, that really happens, and, and, yeah. and, and it can take a very, very, very long time before the right message, before the truth, uh, gets out, and that that keeps me going. So plate tectonics keeps me going in my work on teams. I love the the way you think. I just really do. <laughs> Final question, Doctor Epstein. If I put a button in front of you, uh, this button, if you push it, you are required to eat at In-N-Out Burger at least once a day for the <laughs> remainder of your life. If you press the button. You are required to eat an In-N-Out Burger at least <laughs> once a day for the rest of your life. If you do not press the button, you are prevented from eating at In-N-Out Burger again ever for the rest of your life. Do you or do you not press the button? I press the button in a flash. <laughs> I figured that was your answer. And, I, and it's not and it's not just because of the hidden biblical verses, by the way. I know you're the one that told me about that. I didn't even yeah. know this. I I, I I went to survey a mission location uh, in Mexico about a year ago, and on my way back through, when I stopped in San Diego, I I actually tried to sit down and have dinner with you, and uh, but we couldn't work it out. And I said, "Where should I eat?" And you pointed me to In-N-Out Burger. And you said they've got hidden Bible verses. Look for them. Yeah, they're everywhere. I mean, and, and, some, and sometimes they're really hard to find. You have to you have to look at the, the 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 bottom of your cup on the inner rim of the bottom of the paper cup. I mean, wow, they, these things are hidden, but they're there. But that's not why. To, to, why, why would you choose, why would you push the button in a flash? Oh, I love the food. I mean, it's so good. It's oh, it's, it's absolutely awesome. I love the food. And someday. In and out will surely be in Tennessee. Uh, I'm going to transition now, <laughs> Dr. Epstein, to Team 2.0, um, right. and and get to some relevant stuff here. We've got maybe what 40 more minutes with you, or less, 35. Um, I'm I'm going to start by just saying that uh, I was at a youth ministry conference about three or four years ago, and someone asked Mark Ostriker uh, the question. 
you know, recommend a book that you didn't write. You know, what? Give me t- the names of two books that you didn't write that every youth worker should read. And and one of those two books was Teen 2.0 by Dr. Robert Epstein. And I think he said something along the lines of, if you haven't read Teen 2.0, you need to buy it and you need to read it now. And I took his word for it. I ordered it. And it just really blew me away. It was so fun to read. It took a long time to read because it's so filled with information. And frankly, it's not easy to read. Uh, I'm going to let you describe the main thesis in a moment. But but I'm going to start by saying, Dr. Epstein, uh, that when I got to meet you about a year and a half ago, uh, I started to see in living color your heart for teenagers when, um, as, as you interacted with my, uh, I guess at the time she was eight-year-old, my eight-year-old daughter, Charity, and you looked at her with such respect, and you, when you asked her questions, you wanted to hear real answers. You, you treated her like I had really never seen, and, and, and I'm, in, I'm in a church that just adores my, my eight-year-old. Uh, I'm in a I'm in a profession that I, I feel like I'm so lucky to be surrounded by people that shower my family with love, but I don't know that I had ever seen anyone interact with my eight-year-old daughter the way you did, and it just showed so much respect for her intellect, so much respect for her not just potential, but for the possibility of real. Um, capacity right now to to be a legitimate person that it it just all goes together tell me what is teen 2.0 and why did you write it well it's related actually to what you just talked about and the way i talked to your daughter because um you know i uh going back more than 15 years now um you know i had i had two uh teenage sons at that time and uh, they were very different from each other. Uh, Julian, the older one, whom I you know, adore to death, I mean, I just adore this to him, he's now in his 30s, um, was actually very immature as a person. Um, he's still working on a lot of issues. Uh, and Justin, who was two years younger, so he was, let's say, 13, 14 at the time, was actually very mature. So. I, I actually, I was so curious about the difference. That's why, you know, you as a dad, you know how, how cool it is to have more, have more than one child. Right. Because you, you really get to see how different they are. If you have only one child, you kind of don't get it. But if you have more than one, you, you see those differences. It's amazing, yeah. It's amazing. And it, it's telling you about, obviously, the power of, of genes or something. But the point is, I, I looked at Justin, my, the second one, and I, and I realized in many ways... He was more mature than I was in many ways, especially in the way he balanced work and play. And he was ready. This was the thing that was really bugging me. He was, <laughs> he was ready to be out there in, in the real adult world doing real things, especially business things. He had a real knack for it. And I really began to wonder why was he stuck? And he was, he was stuck in high school which was a complete waste of time for him. And I really got to be interested in that. And I, and I began to wonder, was it always that way? And by the way, I, 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 I'm not saying that I treated him appropriately, because I didn't at the time, and I years later apologized. 
I was treating him the way we as American parents think we're supposed to treat our offspring, whether they're eight years old or 18. You would say we're, you would say we're even programmed to think that way. Oh, absolutely. We are brainwashed. We, We are supposed to be controllers and we're supposed to be uh, almost like police, and we're supposed to be almost like jailers, and we're supposed to, you know, just, uh, you know, morning till night, make sure we're, we are in control of what these young people uh, do and think and say, and, uh, you know, as they get into trouble, we are supposed to be the punishers, and so on and so forth, and, that, yeah. and that's really what I was doing, but a part of me I mean, I searched his room and, you know, right. all that stuff. But a part of me was thinking, wait a minute, this is actually a very mature young person. And I was thinking, even maybe a young man. And um, it just, it's, it was bugging me and bugging me and bugging me, I can tell you. And I, and, but when that happens to me, then my, my scientific side kicks in. And I started <laughs> at first... Yeah just doing a lot of reading in anthropology, in history, uh, trying to find out, you know, whether that had always been true or whether teens were treated differently uh, at some point or whether they are treated differently in some cultures, whether the kind of turmoil we see has always been there, whether it's there in other cultures. And then I started doing my own uh, survey research uh, on this topic and really I just just got into it, and it was mind-boggling for me. I, it was so difficult. I just can't even explain uh, to you and your listeners how difficult this process was for me because I was I was being overwhelmed by massive amounts of data. I mean, I filled up filing cabinets of material, and I you know and I built up a, a library of books on this topic, and. The, what, what, what this information was telling me, I didn't want to hear. I did not want to hear. I didn't want to get that message. But that what I was being told by actual data and studies and then my own studies was I was wrong. And that we as American parents are wrong. We're wrong in the way we, we view uh, you know, young adults in our society. You know, by that I mean you know, young people past puberty. And we are wrong in the way we treat them, and that, um, and a lot of the problems that, that they have, uh, they're our fault. They are the fault of our culture that really uh, does not appreciate them, doesn't respect them, um, and that and that holds them back. And what this was so hard for me. So when I started writing that book, and I actually got to this section at the end where I'm trying to give recommendations, man, I couldn't even do it. I could not do it. I, can't. I, I, I For months, I was putting off writing uh, that part of the book because I just couldn't do it. I couldn't. I couldn't get recommendations that 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 in some sense felt like I like a betrayal to yeah. American parents. You know, to American society. Uh, it was so hard, but eventually I did. Yeah, and every now and then, you will admit that. You know, in in after each. It's like after each chapter, there's moments where you'll 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 let someone sort of push back, and then you'll respond. And there's a moment, a couple of times in the book, where you, you'll someone will ask you, "Are you are you really suggesting that that I do X, Y, or Z?" 
Mm-hmm. And I, I love the way you typically answer with a question, you know, that, and I, I, and so it's like, you're truly the scientist trying to evaluate what is it that I actually want in my teenager? Am I willing to, and that's the thing for me, I think your imagination, you know, your ability and willingness to imagine another way to think about teenagers, another way to treat them is what I loved and appreciated so much about the book. Uh, if you get the book, it's uh, you'll notice that uh, it's about 500 pages long, and but that doesn't include the uh, appendices. Uh, and out of those 500 pages, 88 of the pages are notes. Uh, there are 88 pages of notes uh, from from the uh, book, and and which is just unbelievable how many how much research is in it. Uh, The book is Teen 2.0. The subtitle is Saving Our Children and Families from the Torment of Adolescence. And and Dr. Epstein, before I move on to another question, can I just throw out a couple of websites? Oh, sure, sure. Uh, Teen20.com. So T-E-N, I'm sorry, T-E-E-N, the number two, the number zero.com will take you to a website about the book. Uh, you also have several websites that kind of deal with this idea of teens and parents. Uh, a couple of them about parenting, teenparentingskills.com. There's another one, myparentingskills.com. Uh, that one will help parents, I guess, sort of evaluate their own, you know, how how they are doing as parents if they're interested well, in. Of, yeah, both uh, of those will, but teenparentingskills.com is, a, is about is a, is a test for, for parents of teens. And the other one, myparentingskills.com, is for parents of younger children. But they're both, they both evaluate you, and then they give recommendations about improving your parenting. Uh, there's another, uh, a couple of other websites that sort of deal with this idea of infantilization, which I'm going to let you sort of say a little more about. Uh, the first one is extendedchildhooddisorder.com. And this is a diagnostic tool, right? Yes, it's it's a uh, you see rather than uh, than than label young people uh, as being uh, depressed or oppositional or things like that you know these these horrible labels that that that, that the, the psychiatry community uh, invented uh, you know to to kind of uh, almost to, to demean young people who are having problems uh, I I've proposed a different kind of diagnostic category called extended childhood disorder. Which, uh, which would still, you know, diagnose a young person as having a disorder, except uh, it, it, it shifts the blame. It shifts the blame for the disorder onto society because right. basically, if we if we extend childhood past the point where people are actually children, then that causes uh, some of them to be very distressed and and very depressed, very angry, sometimes suicidal. So. Um, yeah, that's a that's a place where you can go to to get this kind of, you know, diagnostic look at uh, at a at a young person or even at your even at yourself, of course. Uh, so yeah, uh, and and teens themselves can go there and take that test as well. So that's another one. Yep. Or or the final one, howinfantilizedareyou.com is another, I guess, diagnostic that allows you to kind of compare your life with the the treatment and lives of of other people, regular people, whomever. That's right, because uh, you know mainstream adults are, are are not supposed to be treated like children, 
And, and if you do, we call that, if you are treated that way, we call that infantilization. You're infantilized. You're treated like an infant. And this, this particular test shows on a scale, you know, how infantilized you are, you know, compared to young children, uh, compared to mainstream adults, compared to incarcerated felons, compared to active duty U.S. Marines, and so on. And uh, the sad thing there is that a lot of teens uh, score poorly on this test, meaning that they, they, end, they are restricted so much, uh, they, are, they are infantilized so much that they often score lower than incarcerated felons do. I was amazed as I, as I started to think through this, and the book taking, reading the book took me months because I really wanted to process the information that's in it. Um, and again, you're, it's, you're, you're addressing a, an issue that we all see. You know, we, we all see that in our culture, teens are often rebellious. Teens are often disrespectful. And to the point where it has become kind of a joke that when society hears that I work with teenagers, they will assume, you know, they'll make a joke about how they feel so sorry for me that, I, that I'm working with teenagers. And, and I hear it and I'm sort of, I have to stifle frustration because I love what I do. I love getting to work with teenagers. But in our culture, there is that stereotype because we do see it. Um, we, we often see teenagers behaving in ways that we wish that they wouldn't, whether it's in our own home or whether it's, you know, in the parking lots of our movie theaters or what have you uh, in communities around our, our country. Um, you're, you're identifying an issue and offering a solution that I don't, I don't know I would have come to on my own. And the idea is this, as I'm, I'm just going to say it for youth ministers, if any of us listening to this podcast felt like our bosses, if you will, our, the, the, the lead pastor at our church or the shepherds in our congregation or even the parents of the teenagers that we work with and for, if they treated us like children, it would be hard to stay in that job. It, it would be difficult to enjoy the work that we do. And so when we think about teenagers who may feel disrespected in the home, it's not hard to imagine that they would be dissatisfied with the way things are in life. Exactly. That, that, that's, that's the bottom line. Of, you know, put yourself in that position, right? Yeah. Uh, and, that, and, of course, that, that, that's, that's a biblical message. That's, that was one of Jesus' messages, too, you know, uh, you know, to put yourself in the shoes of that other person. And put yourself in the position of a uh, you know, 14-year-old, 17-year-old, 18-year-old who is uh, basically being treated worse than we treat you know, some, some prisoners. And basically said, uh, you, you, can't, you cannot own property, uh, you can't sign contracts, you can't, you can't start a business, you must go to, to high school and you must go to this particular high school. And um, you know, morning until night, Basically, and of course, these days a lot of schools have metal detectors. If you bring aspirin to school, you can be suspended. I mean, things have gotten right. crazier and crazier and crazier. So you know, there's so many restrictions. Put yourself in the position of that young person. Uh, some of these young people get angry and they, they're disrespectful. But worse still, some of them get very depressed, and that's why suicide yeah. is the third leading cause of death among our teens and we actually have about two million teens per year uh, who contemplate 
suicides. So that you know, completed suicides is one thing, but just just it's this no this thinking about suicide is rampant uh, among American teens, and you know this is not true around the world. So and as soon as as soon as I began to see that, then I began to question what was going on here. And I, and, I, and I did eventually figure it out. It just, it just took me years and, you know, it's a terrible struggle. And many of us would point to the bad decisions that teenagers might make, such as crime, you know, committing crimes, or sexual acting out, getting pregnant out of wedlock, what have you. Many would point to those as evidences for why we should control the behavior of teenagers you point to those as the obvious signs of a person who feels capable, who is taking charge of, and essentially, essentially thrusting themselves into the adult world. Oh yes, that's exactly what they're doing. And I was on Bill O'Reilly's show a few years ago, and we were talking about this, and he he was showing these videos of these these horrible teens who were uh, who had a kind of a fight club and they were you know they were just punching lights out of each other and so on. he was he, he was saying how childish this this was and so on and I said no Bill this is exactly the opposite these these are you know little children don't do that to each other these are people who are acting like adults you know as soldiers they're they're imitating what we do what adults do in warfare I said they are they're just what they're doing of course it's pathetic in a way but they're doing what the, all they can do in our culture to try to behave like an adult in yeah. a society that will not let them enter the adult world so they they just do the crazy things they can do to try to assert themselves and of course pregnancy is a very obvious case of that i mean a, you know a 6 year old girl cannot get pregnant right right but they, the teenage females, one of the simplest ways for them to show that they're an adult is to, is to become sexually active and, of course, uh, even to get pregnant. And in some states, uh, and I document this in the book, and this is wild, in some states, as a matter of fact, that's, that is one of the only ways that you can get some control over your life if you're 16, 17 years old is to have a baby. Because once you have a baby, in some states, you get more rights because you uh, are in the role of a mother, right. and you are responsible for your child. So it's amazing. Now, these are all the things that we look at in 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 this negative way. You can look at very differently, and then you can ask a question: What if we actually uh, showed them that respect, and what if we gave them the option if they if they were competent? They showed they were competent and willing. What if we gave them the option uh, to enter the adult world? Then what would they do? And, of course, uh, there's lots of evidence, and that's in the book as well, that if you actually let them enter the adult world, instead of trapping them in this, in this idiotic world of, of teen culture, if you let them enter the adult world, they would flourish. And there's even some evidence that the teens who get in the most trouble those are actually the natural leaders. They are the natural leaders. And if you let them into the adult world, they would flourish more than anyone because those are the leaders. And of course, uh, you're, you're not letting them in, so they become leaders in this kind of pathetic world of teen culture and they get into terrible yeah. trouble. Yeah. But what if we let them in? The, yeah. 
that is just such an interesting idea. And I, as I read the book, this came home to me. Um, I'm in my home, and and we had some rules about eating in our home. So at the time, I think my son was 10 years old. He's 14 now. And if he wanted a cookie, he could have one. If he wanted two cookies, he needed to check with me. And I'm reading Teen 2.0, and I'm, I'm thinking about this idea, and you're throwing out the possibility that perhaps my son would flourish if I allow him to have some meaningful control in his life. And, I'm, and of course, I've got years of youth ministry to process this with. And I start thinking about the idea, the, the hilarious at the time idea that I would be I would require my son to clear it with me that he would have a second cookie at the age of 10 when at the age of two weeks, I was allowing him to say, give me food now. You know, at at the age of two weeks, when my son cried, we asked ourselves, is he dirty? Is he tired? Is he hungry? And whichever one appeared to be the answer, we did that for him. But at the age of 10, when he says... I want a second cookie. Can I have one? The, the idea that I would step in and say, I don't think you need one. There, there was something about it that, that rang true for me. And at that moment, I think I've told you this, I began to say, you decide. You oh, decide. That, that, those are the magic words. And I, and I, and I, give, and I take some credit because I kind of think I taught you those words. Yeah, absolutely. But, absolutely. Uh, it, it, what, what a, what a wake up that was for me when I started doing that because if you if you are concerned about cookies, okay, and you begin to say, you know what, I trust your judgment. Uh, you know, in my opinion, I think if you eat too many sweets, it's going to cause trouble. You'll get fat. You'll get tooth decay. Who knows? You could get diabetes, whatever. So, in my opinion, you know, you should limit which your sweets and limit the number of cookies you have. But you know what? I trust your judgment. Right. You decide. You know, you know what happens in that case? Two things. Number one, they end up eating less cookies, <laughs> less cookies, not more. Right, and, right. And they might, even, they might even give up cookies altogether because you've <laughs> shown them that trust and given them that respect. And the other thing that happens, is, which is even better, is that the two of you get closer to each other. Yeah, yeah. At, that's and if right. you're a controller, then, then then you just create more and more distance between you and your children. But if you keep saying, you decide, yeah. you know, you're giving them information. Yes. You're giving them guidance. You're giving them, you know, the the, the, the wisdom that you have. You're, you're not just letting them float around freely. But then you're also showing them that, that, that respect. Now you you can't really do that you know with a five year old not really unless it's a very unique five year old you can't really but but what you know when they're getting near puberty and certainly when they're past puberty um, you can do this pretty much pretty much on anything I have this therapist friend who keeps he hasn't actually read the book but he's so curious about it he works with <laughs> teens by the way he works with teens every day. And he keeps asking me about this. And yeah. he asks, this, this you decide thing, he asks me about this over and over and over again. And I know what, I know what he, I know where he's coming from because he's been trained in a different way. He's been brainwashed right. and trained in a different way, different kind of thinking. And, but he's so curious about this. Okay. And he I, keeps asking me the same questions over and over again. I just want to challenge every youth minister right now to think about the the difference between saying to an eighth grader, 
you're only 14 versus saying to an eighth grader who is in our youth groups, you're 14 years old. You know, yeah. The, the, just the difference in the way you say those two things. When I said to my son, you're 10 years old. I mean, this is something you can decide. And we did talk about exactly the kinds of things that you suggest. The The difference between those two is it's not hard to imagine how it could change the direction of, of the development of a young person. Uh, I want to move in right now to get a little bit practical because you talked about something there. Your friend that's having trouble with this, you decide. It's one thing with cookies. It's another thing when when teenagers uh, begin to want to make decisions about things that matter even more, such as curfews or what have you. You talked earlier about um, you know getting pregnant, uh, having sex. I, I want you to talk about um, practically speaking, probably every single parent that is listening to this podcast or that is in a youth group that is ministered to by any minister listening to this podcast, any parent would hope that their daughter or their son doesn't have sex before marriage. And and many of them right now are probably trying to make sure that they don't have sex. Someone could hear this message and think that what you're preaching is permissiveness. And I want you to talk us through using using this, you know, sexual activity as a petri dish, talk through the difference between, um, you know, don't infantilize, the, the difference between you decide and being a permissive parent. Well, sure. It's a very, very good example, too. Uh, and, and, and by the way, my therapist friend, this is exactly what, the direction he keeps going in our conversation. He says, yeah, but what if? What if, what if, what about this? What about that case? You know, he's talking about all these horrible things that can happen. And so, yeah, let's just focus on this one. Okay, first of all, let's start with some actual, uh, you know, actual facts, actual data. And that is the studies that compare uh, teens. I don't know if you want to hear this or not, but studies that that compare teens who've been through these abstinence programs uh, to teens who have not. Uh, or have been, or have actually been in just regular sex education program, show either that there's no difference in you know in how much sex they have, or that the ones in the abstinence program have more sex, believe it or not, uh, and have more and have more definitely have more unprotected sex because they don't have as much knowledge about such things, so they have more unprotected sex. So they, we, let's start right there. Why would that be so? Because, again, put yourself in their shoes. Their bodies and their brains are shouting to them, uh, you're an adult now. You're ready. I mean, uh, you know, how old was, uh, was Mary when she had Jesus? Right. You know, by, by most accounts, she certainly wasn't much older than 13. Right. Uh, how old was uh, Juliet in Romeo and Juliet? Well, Shakespeare gets her age. She was 13. So your, the bodies and brains are shouting, you're an adult. But meanwhile, the parent or the pastor is saying, you're a child. And one of the reactions is, uh, uh, no, I'm not. I'm going to do what I want. So in other words, if, if a young person is living in this oppositional environment and feeling controlled, they're more likely, more likely to go, to, to go against you. They're more likely to rebel and be disrespectful uh, at least behind your back, 
maybe not to your face. If they're afraid enough of, of you, then maybe to your face they'll be respectful. But behind your back, they're more likely right, to do right. the wrong thing and to conceal it. Now, if you, if you go the other direction and you say, look, this is, this is what the scripture says. This is what I believe is right and wrong. Uh, this is what I would recommend. Uh, you know, this is what I've done in my life, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I'm hoping you'll go this path, but you know what? I trust your judgment. You decide. Well, again, two things happen. Number one, they're more likely to make a good decision. And then even more important, number two, your relationship is stronger. They're more likely to be honest with you and to continue to communicate with you whatever is going on. Now, I'm going to add one other piece to this, which you and I may not even have discussed, uh, but this therapist that just happened to ask me this uh, uh, this week, actually, he asked me this very question. He said, yeah, but what if they make the wrong decision and things go wrong? And so I added the following. I said, the other message you need to give besides you decide is, and if you make a decision that, uh, you know, is not something that I would want you to make and if things do go wrong for you i will not reject you i will be there for you i will support you i will help you solve the problem because that's who i am in your life i'm a unique person i'm i'm your parent and that's my role in your life it's a special role that probably no one else will ever play in your whole life that's right i and there to love you and support you always for the rest of my life. And you can count on me. And, and so that's another piece that you add on. Mm-hmm. And again, what does that do? That, that makes it even more likely that they'll make a good decision. And of course, it improves the relationship even more. And you know what? Sometimes they're going to make the wrong decision. And sometimes there will be trouble. And then there you are. You are there to support them and help them and get them through this so that in the future, it's more likely that they will make the right decision, that they'll listen to you even more carefully than they did before. So, you know, there's this, what I'm talking about here took me so long to figure out. I can tell you it was such a struggle. I had, I had virtually no guidance from anything, from any, any official government documents, any studies, any, any of my, my, my colleagues in psychology, I, I had virtually no guidance whatsoever. But you know what I'm saying? What I'm saying, it's right. It's right, it's true, <laughs> it, it is. I don't care if, if, if everyone else in the world thinks something different. I don't care anymore, I don't care because I know what I'm saying is right and it's true and it's like plate tectonics. Right. You know, eventually, I think people will figure it out. Whether they remember me or not, they'll figure this out because it's right and it's true. When I first contacted you about your book to ask you questions and just find out more, you began to say this this has been one of the most painful things you've, the most painful projects that you've ever taken on because of the, the level of skepticism and even rejection that you've received uh, after rolling this idea out, would that be fair to say? Oh yes, oh, absolutely. Oh my gosh, uh, yes, and it's still happening. It's still happening. It's just it's it's brutal. Well, the 
the the specific situation that you just helped us think through um, is a good one because we would want to save our sons and daughters the pain of premarital sex, the pain of of pre, you know having a child outside of wedlock or whatever you know maybe sort of hassles that that brings or the kind of difficult life, you know, the changes that it makes to your future. You know, we would want to protect our sons and daughters from that. But Dr. Epstein, in the end, the truth is we cannot prevent, we cannot make the choice to make, to, to keep our sons and daughters sexually pure. That is in the end on them. They are oh, going yeah, to see, make yes, the see. decision. And so yes, you're you're simply that's, that's suggesting the whole control thing is it's an illusion. It is. It's an illusion. The, 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 yes, it's just what you said. They, they're the ones ultimately you have to decide. Sure. So I'm sure you know many parents simply can't go there, you know, be, because they love their daughter too much or they love their son too much to leave them to their own decisions. And and your thesis basically says that that kind of thinking you know, will do two things. One, it, it, it will not help a son or daughter to prepare against or avoid certain behaviors. And number two, it will damage the relationship. I can imagine a scenario where a dad says, not under my roof. Am I going to have right. a daughter that's having sex with her boyfriend in the 10th grade? Not under right. my roof. If after blowing it, that daughter is caught it will be so difficult for that father to come back and say, I'm here for you. Right. And I love you anyway. You know, you're my pregnant daughter and I love you. Forget that a year, two years, five years, all these years I've been saying, not under my roof, no daughter of mine is going to. You know, you're suggesting a, a, just a new way to think. And I, and I really appreciate that you've written this book. Again, the book is Teen 2.0. And I will definitely tweet out links to these different studies and things. But uh, I would just say that my experience with you, Dr. Epstein, would, would lead me to suggest that if there's any listener here that wants to push back against what you're saying, to argue the point with you, wants to learn more. And you know, if the interest is, is gaining knowledge in, in sort of developing as parents or leaders, they... Can they try to get in touch with you somehow? Oh, sure, absolutely. I I, I have parents uh, who contact me almost every day, so uh, and I'm happy I'm happy to try it, you know, to, if I can to, to help or at least point you to the to the right material. Uh, and I and I do want to add one little thing here, which is you know I I have two teens at home now who are 14 and 16, and uh, I parent completely differently that I did with the older ones because I learned all this stuff, you know, and I compare completely different and it's fantastic. It is, it is a much, much better way to parent. I yeah. mean, my relationship with these two young people is, is, is so, so positive, always so positive. And the fact is these two young people lead very responsible lives uh, because I think in part, because I, have shown them this trust and this respect while also giving them uh, my wisdom as best I can and my opinion and my sound advice and so on and so forth. And I think as a result, they've made uh, better decisions. And again, the relationship is so incredibly strong. 
and they do not feel control uh, because I, that's not my role. My role right. is I'm, I'm a facilitator. My role, my job is to, is to bring them forward into uh, responsible adulthood you know, as quickly as I can and as best I can, right. not to control them. And I never want them to see me as a controller. I want them to conceive, see me as a facilitator, not as a buddy. Yeah, right. Not, not a, buddy. a buddy. I'm not. No, I'm not a buddy. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm their dad. I'm a responsible dad. I'm a caring right. and loving dad. And I have lots to offer them in terms of my life experience and wisdom and my values and beliefs. You know, and that's how I want them to see me. That I'm this 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 resource. I'm this incredible resource who actually who also happens to love them. See, and uh, and, and that's what I'm doing. Yeah. I'm bringing them forward. I'm not holding them back. I'm bringing them forward. So you know, I, I practice what I preach, and I am right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Doctor, got that going for me. <laughs> Doctor E, you have blessed the Rubio home uh, just in ways that I can never truly say thank you for because I feel like I am a different father um, and a different youth minister because of this. And I could not recommend more highly to every single person listening to this podcast, go get Teen 2.0 and read it. And by the way, I don't agree with everything in it, but I do agree with you when you say I'm right. I think you're right. I think you're right. And and I love you. I really do. And I wish that we could hug one another. This, I just, digital side hug will have to work for now. Uh, Dr. Epstein, when you are back in Nashville, it's Joey's House of Pizza and, and then oh, yeah. Poppy Seed wow. Chicken at the Rubio's House. Uh, thank you for, for joining us today and spending some time. Thank you, David. Fantastic experience always. And, and my best and my love to your, to your family and to your, uh, your whole congregation. Thank you so much. Absolutely. See you, Dr. E. God bless. Bye-bye. Okay, two real quick suggestions uh, that that I took from Team 2.0 and implemented in our church. One, uh, with Youth Sunday, and everybody's got a Youth Sunday, but Team 2.0 made me want to ask, what if we gave our teenagers responsibility for every single aspect of Sunday morning worship in our congregation of 1,500 people. Would that be a train wreck? Are there elements of Sunday morning we can't give them because we don't think they're capable? Um, We gave them every single aspect of a Sunday morning. We've done it twice now, and I just can't say enough about the the impact that it has had on the community. it, it is without question, and I believe everyone that has been to either of those services would say the same thing, without question, you know, the most meaningful Sunday mornings uh, in terms of just the congregational consciousness. I, people are, they just cannot wait to have another morning where we give the whole thing to teenagers. The other idea is this. With one of our Sunday morning classes, we did what is called a laboratory of theological exploration and I challenged students, and they got to choose to come to this class. So I think there were five or six that chose to do this. But they got to choose a research project that related to Scripture somehow. They researched it. They did the work on their own. And, and I gave them access to a couple of uh, professors from a local Christian university here uh, to provide some guidance and feedback or, or help finding resources. 
But these students took charge of learning about these topics that they were interested in, and then they presented those findings in a kind of report to their peers. And it was just really, really beautiful to see what happened when we gave them responsibility for their own learning. And, you know, we as youth ministers can't make students grow. We can't make them learn. Uh, but we, we are in a unique position to help them take responsibility for their lives uh, before God. And, I, and I, I, these are some ideas that came from Team 2.0. Dr. Epstein is gone, but I say thank you again to him. Thanks for listening to this digital side hug, and we'll see what happens next time. All right, blessings, everybody. Talk to you soon.